0: Landscape architects and architects and planners are having to grapple with their professional histories. How do we use these same skills that were used to remove, to segregate, to oppress? Can they be retooled to tell those stories, to create justice, to design justice? Is it possible? I mean, those are some of the biggest questions facing us now not just talking about it, but what does it look like? What does it actually look like to design and build justice, essentially, in the context of, of all these years of, of our profession doing the opposite.
1: Episode 48 with landscape architect, Sarah Sodi. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kelmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Can public parks and civic space become sites of liberation? What role has colonization and slavery played in our eroding coastlines and extreme weather events? How have our designed environments been designing us? Today's conversation is with landscape architect Sarah Zodi. As founding principal of her eponymous and architectural Digest 100 design firm, Studio Zodi, Sarah and her team are devoted to creating enduring spaces where people feel like they belong. Hailing from the Gulf Coast region of the United States, it was Hurricane Katrina and its aftereffects that sparked Sarah's calling to the land, the forces that shape it, and the histories that define it. Only one of 13 licensed black female landscape architects in the country, that's right, 13, Sarah finds herself in a unique position to reshape our thinking about public space through the lens of black femme perceptivity. In today's conversation, we delve deep into the widely unknown abolitionist origins of landscape architecture, including the anti-slavery leanings of its founder, Frederick Law Olmsted, the historical role Black people have played in shaping American landscape, and how we as citizens can reclaim our agency in imagining what our communities should look like and how they should function. It's such a pleasure to be in conversation with you, and we'd love to get to know you just a bit better. Head to www.blackimagination.com survey and answer a few questions about yourself. It only takes a few minutes of your time and will help us understand more about you. You can also find the link at the top of our Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And have you left a review yet? Head over to Apple Podcast and drop us a line. Let others know what all the hype is about. And now, a dialogue about space and the people that shape it with landscape architect Sarah Zodi. Miss Sarah Zodi, I am so excited and excited dare I say thrilled uh, to have you here on the Institute of black imagination um the idea of of land um, and landscape I think is something that we don't often think about and so I just think this is going to be an incredible incredible conversation so welcome welcome to the Institute
0: thank you for having me I'm so honored to be uh, invited to this I mean the conversations that precede me have, been foundational for my own thinking about a lot of these ideas, and so the intersection of these topics, and to insert land and landscape into the mix of um, you know of frameworks that you've introduced at the institute. I'm just really humbled to be to be here. So thank you for the invitation.
1: Oh, of course, of course. Um, so to start, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Ooh.
0: You know, yesterday, uh, the the um, news was leaked about Roe versus Wade, and that's been weighing on my mind today. So this is dedicated to women. This conversation is dedicated to women. Um, I'll leave it at that.
1: Mm. Yeah, let me take that in. Um... It's, it's the strangest thing. I, <laughs> I want to cry at the simplest things, but like whenever freedoms are taken away from people, it just sends me reeling. Mm-hmm. So um, this is to all the women out there. Mm-hmm. We love you um, and support you. Um, so I think to start, what is landscape architecture? <laughs> Like a, what is it? Like yeah, I think people are, are like, it? you plant flowers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know people are was like, gardener? oh, <laughs> in my backyard. Um, and we do backyard. We do a lot of things. But here is the thing: um, people associate us with architecture, um, a much more commonly known profession. Um, and the thing about architecture is, um, it's missing the prefix uh, that we have, because what we call architects are building architects, right? They design buildings. Landscape architects design literally everything else on the surface of the earth. <laughs> so we are not a subfield to architecture, we are a, a, dis- a to building architecture. So whenever people say they're architects, I, I call them building architects. Um, build, there's building architects and there's landscape architects, pretty much anything you know, that doesn't have a roof over it. And sometimes, or I should say things that don't have walls because we design pavilions, but, um, you know, so that could mean a garden, but it could also mean an entire watershed or entire coastline. Um, So we work at a range of different scales, uh, but we work with the land. And um, it was formally made a profession in the late 19th century, but people and their traditions and rituals, we've been working in the land and with the land um, in creative ways you know, for human history. Um, but the idea of it as a profession emerges in the late 19th century, um, much later than building architecture. Um, and, and so it's a relatively new field. And I think it has a lot to contribute to some of the biggest issues of the society, which is what brought me to this profession.
1: And what are some of those issues? Like, what are some of those pressing issues?
0: So, um, I mean, this, this might be an opportunity to introduce the, the founder of the profession, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, who uh, essentially, you know, is born at the beginning of the cotton boom in the United States, in, in, in Connecticut. And he comes of age as the cotton boom is emerging and um, reshaping, remapping the economy and the status of the United States of America in global economic trade winds. And he finds slavery, which is the biggest issue of the day, to be um, an issue that's essentially, um, the, the argumentation around slavery is, is problematic for him and he decides to get involved in abolition. And he, through the issue of slavery, emerges uh, and creates a set of skills that we call landscape architecture to address issues of economic justice, of land ownership, of social relations, of uh, an apparatus for democracy, of ecology and dealing with ecological vulnerability and so I've in my own work and my research have been kind of doing some historical research about the late 19th century and his relationship to the plantation and reframing it as the origin story of landscape architecture because through his his reflections on slavery and the south and the ways in which its traces remain a part of our everyday life and remain undergirding our major issues of today he sees a, a a set of skills called landscape architecture as being really critical to affecting change. Um, So for instance, he cites a lot of the erosion issues um, around the lower Mississippi Valley as being distinctly a function of the fact that cotton as a monoculture is what's driving the flattening of biodiversity, the remapping and reshaping of a levee system of you know, r- trying to re-envision what a river does in order to optimize the growth of, and harvesting of cotton, and ways in which hundreds of years later that will ultimately mean that lower the Lower Mississippi Valley remains ecologically vulnerable to things like Hurricane Katrina. And so he, in 1852, is writing about about this, and um, you know, so and he's writing about essentially some of the, he, he basically comes back from the South and he says, you know, in, slavery is obviously dehumanizing to the enslaved, but it's also dehumanizing to the enslavers. And that the enslavers are no longer able to see each other as humans because they spend so much time dehumanizing humans. And so he's, he makes references to the fact that the South has no, or has little technological innovation, has very little um, in terms of public school, public education, public health care. There's no investment in a notion of the public good. And so he starts to arrive at an idea for what the public good can do for the project of democracy. So there's a lot of threads in there. We can pull at any one of them, but that is that in, in my kind of rehistoricizing my profession, the work that I'm doing right now, um, sets the stage for this, this, this thing called landscape architecture to enter the scene in the 19th century.
1: That's, uh, yes, you're right. There are so many threads to pull from. That is like a super fascinating grounding. Like, first of all, you mention that he's writing, that, that this is something that he wrote down. Where can people find this writing?
0: Well, uh, so it was originally commissioned by the New York Times uh, in its first year. Um, It was a fledgling newspaper that was established with an abolitionist voice. And so they hired him to be uh, a traveling correspondent. So he had a column and it was really shaping the conversation in the North and, and in Europe. So he is, so you can find it in the New York Times archives. Um, You can also find he republishes it as a series of books um, called, there's a singular volume called The Cotton Kingdom. I mean, it's tough to read. It's the 19th century. Um, But I'm I'm writing a book now reflecting on that and trying to pull out some of the more contemporary conclusions and interpretations uh, of his writing. But it's very, very detailed, very expository. A lot of it is his dialogue with enslaved people. He is the most cited witness of 19th century slavery period because of the time and the breadth of his travels around the South. And I retraced his steps for four months through the South um, and found that, you know, and I think many of us probably know this, but a lot of the very specific social and economic dynamics that he's referencing and describing in such detail are so present today. Um, What's not present though is, are the physical markers of, of the slavery that he witnessed. And so the landscapes have changed to obscure and recast their histories. And so I always find it kind of an ironic twist of fate that the profession he founded has been the tool to retell um, or hide the stories that he wanted to tell about America.
1: Um, and just for listeners, it's so funny. I can't believe the one thing we have not mentioned is who Frederick Law Olmsted is, and he is a landscape architect who is most famous for Central park in new york city we completely skipped over that part which is interesting um and not only central park but you know parks in you know like what is this the emerald necklace in boston there's places in minnesota so he is considered the father the the grand monsieur of landscape architecture and so i think it's really interesting that this this background story of of the the paragon of what landscape archer landscape architecture is and could be, right? With this Central Park, um, is really one that was rooted in an abolitionist thought, right? And really using and thinking about um, land and land use in relationship to how we could find. For you know, lack of a better term, common ground, right? A space that was devoid of needing to define the other as labor and master, um, but a space where we could be human. And I think that that's a really you know interesting lens uh, through which to look at what a park means in an urban environment. And I know some from some of our previous conversations you know, really kind of thinking of landscape architecture almost as a Mm anti-capitalist profession, right? Like, could you double tap on that? Yeah. Like how it's really kind of the refusal of capital in a way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think um, that's an important point to make. There was no, there were no public parks in America before Olmstead. None. And um, his... He and his firm ended up touching 5,500 parks in the United States. So, I mean, I, I make the case that perhaps no singular human has shaped the way America looks more than Frederick Lawns did. So, our literally our idea of what a park looks like is was invented by him. I mean, Central Park. People think it's just the rectangle that buildings that they didn't put buildings in. It's not a. It's not a nature preserve. You know, it is as much designed as the buildings that face it. It is a complete fabrication. Nothing there is natural. The only thing that's natural are, are the outcroppings, um, and which shaped a lot of of Olmsted's approach. But it's it's a design. It's a and and not only is it a design, but it's actually. And this is one of my critiques of Olmsted. Uh, it is actually a fabrication that's somewhat of a replica of the English picturesque tradition. It is an English landscape that's been stamped into New York City. And our idea of parks, the windy paths, the the lawns, that is a fabrication. That is an English landscape that we now associate with parks. But it's ways in unraveling all of that. Um, it's, it's, you know, because landscapes don't have this like very obvious signature that a building does, um, sometimes hard to engage people in the idea that people designed it, but yes, he returns from the South and he throws himself in the project of Central Park, the first park the first public park in the United States. And so he's grappling with his reflections on the South and the impacts of slavery on the society and decides to translate that into a design theory about society that we that are basically embellished in Central Park. Um, and at the heart of that is exactly what you mentioned that we need if we are going to become a postbellum society and after slavery, We need places and spaces to engage with each other that are uh, somewhat untethered to the fierce controls of ownership, of of capital, and of consumption. And that's the idea of Central Park, and that's the idea that generated really the, the American public park movement subsequently i mean that's at the core of it now we've gone all these separate ways and done all these different things and landscape architecture has become a weapon used against the people that are descendants of the enslaved we can we can double tap on that you know after but um there are a lot of design decisions um that we see in central park and and park's largely because of that theory. So for instance, this, the windy paths are a distinct departure from the grid. The grid is about efficiency and control and about an awareness of space. And he, he very consciously wanted to approach circulation in a way that disorients you. It is really hard to describe how to get from one place to another in some Park, And there's a reason for that, that, it was, that was designed. Um, it's meant to take you away from time, from a strict kind of um, the, the oppressive time controls that, that, that are governed by capital. And, um, you know, the idea also that the borders of the park are heavily planted, that you can't see the buildings or the, there's no, he fought really hard to keep buildings from being in the park or a lot of places where you have to buy things is really meant to be outside of all of those other social structures and remove you from, from the city, from the city that is um, an artifact of these, of these capital flows. Um, you know, other elements like, uh, you know, at the time what, what was really popular in terms of landscape design were big monuments and axes and formal kind of center points. There's no center to Central Park. And that is something that he fought hard for that he felt that those monuments are demonstrations of power. And he wanted to create this really loose arrangement of different spaces where different types of people can do different things together. So there's a lot of social theory that are, is embedded in the, in the origin story of, of landscape architecture. I think we've lost our way, which is why I I'm doing what I'm doing because I think there's a lot that we can do to harness this way of thinking and, and design public spaces for us to to come together and form form a union and form a democracy.
1: This is so rich. Like, so we're going we're going to come back to this part of the conversation um, because I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I think there's a lot of water <clears throat> to be troubled in Ooh. the space of the legacy of, of Olmsted, and then also the legacy of uh landscape architecture but there's something that you said earlier that i found fascinating which was how slavery um and and the commodities through which it, it 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 operated right which is like these monocultures of tobacco um, cotton and sugar the ways in which they actually shaped the landscape um, in a way that we're actually paying for yeah. today right yeah. that that has lit that is literally affecting um you know uh climate hurricanes and the ways in which land responds to to storms and i know that you know, Hurricane Katrina was something that was really pivotal, really in your development as as a as a person and as a designer. Could you could you speak about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was born and raised on the Gulf Coast and in Louisiana and Texas, and watching the hurricane from my dorm room in in Boston in college, um, at a time where I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, professionally. That was a really, that was a, a pivotal moment for me because it sent me on a journey of trying to find ways to understand land um, and not just land as a physical, in the physical dimension, but land in an, an expanded sense, the social, the political, you know, the infrastructural, because Katrina was not a weather event, you know, it was all, it, it, it was a political event, it was all of these other things and so how how can we form a way of understanding that bundle of factors and how do we project and, and intervene in that and so i i i thought it would be urban sociology then i thought it was going to be statistics i did that then i went to city planning i did a master's in city planning it wasn't that then i came to i took the scenic route and <laughs> went to landscape architecture um and and that's where it, you know, the profession itself is not practiced in the way that, that I think it should be and was historically, at least in the case of Olmstead. But it, it, is, it is, in fact, the, the way of thinking that he set forth that, that I'm trying to, to build upon. So it's, um, after him, it really became, it really did become a profession about putting shrubs around buildings. Um, but for me, I see the opportunity to take this way of thinking, to take, um, you know, a really layered understanding of land, uh, you know, from the social, the economic, the environmental, the cultural, really a deep understanding of land and how it's shaped. And it takes that in my mind to be good at shaping it. And so, you know, I have the technical skills and the licensure to, to operate in the world that we live in today you know, to give somebody a construction set and say, you know, this is how we're going to build this land. Um, but I, you know, want to do so in a way that's really couched in really deep understanding of, of land.
1: And, you know, and, and entering this profession of landscape architecture, um, you find yourself without many peers that look like you. What, what, why is that what 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 are we talking about here how why are you so lonely
0: I'm, <laughs> Ooh, how much time do you have um, oh. <laughs> I'm one of 13 black women in America licensed yeah. what mm-hmm. yeah um, well you know I think that, I, I, I first and foremost blame the profession itself. I didn't all of this these stories about the the history of slavery and its relationship to the founding of the profession that was not ever presented to me in all of those years of of higher education that was never presented to me. This if 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 it was I would have absorbed that knowledge and kept my life moving forward. Now I find myself having to write the book because. The story was never told, and having to go through the archives myself and go through his personal letters and retrace his steps through the South and write the book myself because that story wasn't told to me. So that's something that, um, you know, when people exalt like peer reviewed journals and scholarly, you know, understandings of history, I just can't, I just don't buy it because. I was have had the privilege over the last few years of uncovering these stories myself, having paid these people to tell me the story of this profession that they made up, um, and they 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 for whatever reason decided not to tell me this part of the story, and so here I am having to 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 put it you know back in their face about the the real story. So. Um, That, I think, I I blame the profession itself a lot because if we knew how central we were to the story um, of the profession and what the real motivation was, I think we would be an empowered population about shaping land, about becoming engaged in civic ground and public space. You know, we as consumers are really good at talking about design, you know, there's a whole kind of public discourse around fashion and art and all different realms of culture. We are in landscapes every day. We stand on the corner, we hang out, you know, in the park, on the street. We are in these designs, in these landscape places every day, and they are forming our our culture and our culture is forming them. And we could be much more engaged, much more control of what our communities, our cities look like, you know, with um, a level of discourse. And so that's part of and that's part of why I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you because I don't want to talk to landscape architects. I don't want to talk to architects, you know, I want to talk to people. I, everybody is in these places every day. So, you know, I, yeah, I blame, I blame the profession for making it obscure and for not telling us the real story of, of public parks and public space and what the initial motivation was. I think that initial motivation is still my motivation.
1: Yeah. And what is it, what does it look like to have black women's perceptivity on land and space?
0: You know, I mean this, the thing about retracing his steps through the South and being born and raised in the South myself is understanding the relationship between the American landscape and black women. It was built on the backs of black women. And to, to not share the story of, of us as protagonists historically makes it seem like we're trying to catch up in the history. But in reality, Black people are the protagonists of the last 400 years of the American landscape. Nobody has shaped, we have been the landscape architects, right? For 400 years. So, to this is, you know, it's, it's a little bit troubling to say, oh, there's only 13 black, women. you know, because we, if you think in an expanded way about what landscape architecture is shaping land, then, then no one has, has shaped this land like Black people have for hundreds of years, which is why I find, again, the profession so troubling because when you study it and it historically, you're learning about a conception of landscape from the perspective of people that were owning and trafficking Black people uh, and about dominion over the landscape. Olmsted actually writes about this and he does put Black people as the protagonists in the landscape. That the, I mean, he's talking to them and clearly, concluding that people the the owners the planters know nothing about the land he said i can't talk to them about the land they don't know anything about what's going on they don't know the harvest seasons they don't know how to work with erosion with the flooding issues none of that if he wanted to talk about land there was the only people he could talk to about people so you know I think the more we surface those stories, the more we become um, aligned with the set of skills that is landscape architecture. It's just shaping land and we've been doing it forever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It gets down to the fact of why we were brought here, right? It just wasn't just willy nilly. It's because we have, uh, you know, um, a very, very, Long and and incredible history with land and shaping land, right? So we were brought here for our skills, um, <clears throat> not just out of any you know weirdness. But I, there's a couple of things, you know. One, not to to continue to double down on on Olmstead, but I think it's a really good frame with which to unpack um, other histories. So. Um, I know that he was also himself influenced by another Frederick, Frederick Douglass. What was that relationship like?
0: Well, for Olmstead, um, kind of going back to his original inspiration, the, the real success of a postbellum society for him was the success of the American Negro. I mean, those are his words exactly. And he, he goes to a conference in Rochester, uh, a gathering of black folks in Rochester, Uh, conference, and he sees Frederick Douglass speak, and a number of people speak. And he said it was the most impressive gathering of people and of minds he's ever seen, Black or white. And he started to reflect on the significance of of, um, Black discourse, Black gathering, Black intellectualism, And so to me, in my, in my view, I, you know, when I think about the fact that Harlem ultimately evolved to form the Northern boundary of Central Park and become this font uh, for the black global uh, Pan-African movement, uh, I think there's an incredible parallel to reflect on. Um, And so we're, I mean, I guess it hasn't been said, but Frederick Longstead is white. so for him uh in the 19th century to you know and I'm not really one to to feel like I need to be telling white stories more than they're already told it's a useful device though to take their history and flip it on its head oh this is your hero look at what he was actually talking about you know uh and so that intersection with Frederick Douglass I I love and I and I so now when I walk through Olmstead's parks I look at the spaces where black people are gathering, um, where this, you know, uh, Franklin Park in Boston, part of the Emerald Necklace um, had the, it was the home of the largest George Floyd uh, protest in the city of Boston. And so when those, when those moments happen in these parks, I mean, that's kind of what they were made for, was for people to gather and not to leave behind and discard who they are. That's not what the democracy that he was designing for was about, but rather you know, coming together, alone, together, you know, with your group, whoever you are, but part of a larger union.
1: Yeah, and I think this is also a good time to, before we, you know, fully glorify and uplift, that we also troubled the water um, mm-hmm. of, of Frederick Law Olmstead. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that it's also important um, because in this time of quote-unquote cancel culture, which is just, I think annoying. Um, and, and really, I think just strips individuals and I think just individuals, you know, um, level of intelligence of, of nuance. It just completely strips it. Um, there's problems here, right? Like um, there are issues of dis- mass displacement Absolutely. of like historic black communities totally. to make a central park exactly. happen, right? You know, yeah. we have to talk about um, Robert Moses who also used the Parks Department uh, of New York City to wield uh, an unworldly amount of power, uh, of unelected power, um, to, to put highways uh, through... Mm. Uh, the middle of historic black and brown communities the ways in which even Robert Moses again uses the landscape um as and and uses design as a way of, geographically shaping the ways bodies move through space. Like, for instance, the ways in which he created overpasses that led to the beaches mm-hmm. of New York City, um, he made them lower so that public buses actually couldn't go under them, right? So you would have to have a car in order to get to beaches. So so I think it's, let's talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the ways in which landscape architecture and design has actually been used to perpetuate oppression, or even, like you mentioned earlier, rewrite histories.
0: Absolutely. Like how, do,
1: how do you reconcile that?
0: In the case of Central Park specifically, I mean, um, you might know that it was the site of Seneca Village, which was a very notable uh, middle-class Black neighborhood of the 19th century, which was, you know, not common. And um, it was actually some, the largest land-owning Black neighborhood in the state of New York at the time the decision to locate Central Park where it was predates Olmstead about 10 years. And in fact, it was, it was originally supposed to be on the east side of Manhattan. Um, uh, and he actually found the location to be very troubling. The, trou- the, the location was in fact decided by um, landowners, land speculators, and some pretty racist people who some staunch slavery advocates. So, and he was very troubled by that. Um, so, in the case of Seneca Village specifically, um, I, I have not found any evidence necessarily that Olmsted. I mean, he he was against the location. He thought it was the worst location possible on Manhattan. Uh, but the idea of taking 840 acres off the private land market set a dangerous precedent. It set a very dangerous precedent. Now, in the in the case of Central. Uh, uh, the idea, rather, is meant to be used to, to support the society. However, the, kinds of, the, the kind of present that the set meant that it could be wielded in any direction. Uh, and it did. So, And it, it didn't even wait for Robert Moses. It was Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. who actually went around the country advertising uh, landscape architecture as a tool for promoting segregation. Oh, you, you need some segregation? <laughs> Let me sell you this profession. That is how the profession actually gained a lot of business in, in the early 20th century. Um, so cities, politicians, mayors would call landscape architects to come in. Um, Robert Moses was part of the kind of cadre of people that were, that were brought in as consultants to cities. Um, and parks, freeways, um, urban renewal, federal housing, all of these, I mean, a lot of this actually coincides with the, with integration. So as soon as integration um, moves through cities, segregation uh, through urban planning, urban design, landscape architecture becomes big business. So it is true that a lot of these investments were, were wielded specifically to, to, segregate the society. So um, that is, that's been the heart of our profession for, you know, since its founding. And a lot of the way that landscape architects are thinking now is really rooted in guilt. And there's this kind of paternalistic tone of how planners and designers are approaching cities now. Um, Because people are coming, people who historically were moving out to the suburbs are now wanting to come back to the urban core of cities again. And so it's putting a lot of pressure on places where freeways were bisecting historically uh, African American communities. Um, And and so there's, there's a tension in cities across the country. So landscape architects and architects and planners are having to grapple with their professional histories. How do we use these same skills that were used to remove, to segregate, to oppress, can they be retooled to, to tell those stories, to, you know, to create justice, to design justice? Is it possible? I mean, those are some of the biggest questions facing us now. Um, not just talking about, it, but what does it look like? What does it actually look like to design and build, you know, justice, essentially, in the context of, of all these years of, of our profession doing the opposite? That's, that's really the biggest question. Can, you know, Audrey Lords? Uh, quote about using the master's tools. You know, is it is it even possible? I I I'm here because I, I believe there is a way to retool these skill sets, uh, and 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 in part, it's places like the Institute of, or platforms like the Institute of Black Imagination where we we have to imagine what that looks like. We have to come together and say, well, what what would it look like if we could create our own place, our own space, our own community, our own parks, our own streets and sidewalks, our own porches, you know? And, and now, you know, if, if, we have, if we really think about design in an expanded sense, I mean, it's, it's, it starts with imaging and, and shaping. And so when I think about it from that perspective, it's like, there's a lot to explore. And we shouldn't be doing it by ourselves. We should be engaging everyone. Everyone should be involved in this project of thinking about the world we want to make, thinking about the world that supports our highest sense of selves, um, creating, you know, a place that, yeah, allows us to be free. And that's, you know, kind of heady, but that is literally my job. <laughs> That's my everyday life.
1: That's my job. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think of it as heady as all at all, and it really gets to. Um, hopefully, it'll get to this car alarm that's going off in the background, um, but it really gets to design as. Uh, you know, for me, also this expanded notion of like design as any technology to bring thought into space-time, right? Mm. So that that it's not just about even the built environment, but really understanding, you know, even how we socially move through the world. What does it mean to identify with, you know, what it means to be a man or a woman or a landscape architect or a teacher, right? Like these are also, you know, um, design frameworks, but I think what you get at also is the ways in which design has been leveraged as a tool of oppression,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? That design can both liberate and confine. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as it relates to history, right? That, you know, going through Frederick Law Olmsted's book, which we'll put in the show notes for sure. Um, you know, you mentioned um, in previous interviews and lectures where You went back to places where he spoke of like African burial grounds, and what you find is a gazebo and a pavilion, right? And people have no idea that underneath the land in which they walk are bodies of formerly enslaved individuals, right? And the ways in which landscape, which from a larger perspective, the ways in which design has been used in order to cover up histories right and also shift attention right the ways in which this even profession of landscape architecture has been stripped of like the the abolitionist skeletal frame um to then be wielded to systematically and kind of in a way invisibly create separation Mm -hmm. right through a passage of trees or a railroad track, right? Like you, you think about how many, how many stories around the Black experience are about being on the other side of the tracks, tracks, right? So the ways in which space um, and the design of space actually perpetuates oppression, and you know, providing a space, um, you know, here at the IBI, and of course, it's going to take all of us really to reimagine how we can use design or this intelligence, right, as a way of of liberation. Um, and speaking about using, you know, landscape architecture particularly um, as, as a way of, of, of liberating and creating more equitable futures for all of us, you know, I think also contemporaneously we're thinking a lot about climate mm-hmm. um, and coasts, right, which are going to affect um, black and Brown individuals the most. So in what ways are you, you know, as as, as a Black woman and a Black female landscape architect thinking about climate change um, and the ways it's going to affect our communities for the future?
0: Yeah. I'll, I, I want to underline something you said and, I, and it'll launch me into that, which is the level of cognitive dissonance uh, that we live in as Black people in America. That we, we are walking through this world, knowing that places have these histories and being gaslit all day by what we see in the physical realm, it is exhausting. And so what if those landscapes for a moment could bring that cognitive dissonance into some cognitive union? What does that feel like? What would it feel like for the environment to reaffirm what you know about the history of this place? For most of us, we've <laughs> Never experienced that. I can't, even, you know, there are moments of when we talk about black joy, I always think of, of part of the spark of black joy being those moments of, of union, of feeling like your environment is in, in union with what you know about yourself. And I, I believe in the ability of landscape to help shape that because of how much dissonance is, is, is because of the gaslighting that our built environment, um, prompts in all of us. And, and this, it's central to our psychology. You know, it's the Du Bois double consciousness. What if we brought that together? What if we didn't live in, you know, this kind of the, the chasm between the, the two consciousnesses? That is, for me, the direction of, of you know, my ambition for, for what, my own practice. In terms of climate change, and, and it's not unrelated, you know, the ways in which we build cities right now are rooted in um, the really, really extractive practices. Like in the Americas, the way that infrastructure is built, cities are built is not was not meant to be sustainable. It was a, it was about colonization. Literally, the tools of architect, architecture's profession, building architecture, emerges in the fifteenth century. You know what else does slavery? <laughs> you know, and you can't you can't separate. It's not coincidental that architecture. <laughs> like started when when slavery started they uh, it was a tool and it was a tool about conquering other lands and extracting the resources it was never about designing resilient places and having a relationship to ancestral homelands that's not what architecture was made for before they were traveling they didn't call it architecture they just were like it was life it's, you just build things and like you know so the the, the, the central core of the, the problems that we're facing around climate change are related to this. Why, does New Orleans, why was New Orleans built at the mouth of uh, the Mississippi River, which collects 40% of, of the rainwater on the entire continent? It is the dumbest decision in terms of sustainability and resilience. So it makes no sense, other than it's a great place to buy and sell humans from and transport them into the interior of the United States and export them out to... Uh, import them from the West Indies, from Africa. I mean, it makes complete sense from that standpoint. Cotton, all of the corn being grown, in the, all of that makes sense, but it doesn't make sense in terms of having a relationship to your land in the long, in the long run. So um, what's interesting though, and you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about why were people brought here? Why were black people brought here? So if you rewind about 300 million years ago, um, the Southeast United States and the West African coast actually were part of the same landmass, And so the soil profiles of these lands are actually very similar. And so you see some of the same plants, at least at the genus level, not at the species level that predate that history and bring those lands together. And so the relationship to this land in the Southeast United States uh, in relationship to West Africa actually goes, goes, predates the transatlantic slave trade, um, from, from a botanical standpoint. So what's interesting though, is the way that black people have been living in West Africa on river deltas and in these really dynamic landscapes where that's, that are what we call vo- ecologically vulnerable. There are technologies in, on the African continent that demonstrate how to live in a really ecologically dynamic place. So we know how to build cities in riverbeds. We've been doing it, you know? Um, we know, we like, these are, we, we've been building places that have outlasted much longer than 400 years. Like they're struggling to build these cities to last 400 years, that's cute. But we have cities that have lasted thousands of years. And um, so, I think part of designing in the context of climate change is actually about, and so, so do indigenous people of the Americas, by the way. And so for me, I think we have to unearth the technologies, the kinds of technologies uh, that are inherent in indigenous land practices all over the world, because they signal to us um, a long-term relationship to land, uh, the, the way in which an ancestral relationship to land would support. So a lot of my thing it's not about inventing new things. I mean, I think, I think it is I think it is in a way, but it's harnessing the thousands of years of knowledge that we have about living on this earth.
1: What are some of those technologies?
0: So for instance, I mean, when the Europeans went to West Africa and, and were taking people, they traveled along the rivers to capture people that lived inland. And there were bustling metropolises of thousands of people already established there, African cities. And so their method of habitation was dynamic. They never, they didn't build a home, for instance, to be stationed there forever. But as the river flows, as the river changes, there was a kind of modularity about building homes. It grows, it shrinks, it moves. Um, Being able to think about your home and your habitation as being mobile and untethered to a a specific, you know, ownership of a specific plot of land, but rather a dynamic relationship to land that that moves with the water, the way that landscapes are supposed to be. The Mississippi River wants to change course, and it will, as the Army Corps of Engineers um, has been fighting it, but this river, rivers want to change courses. And a lot of what you see in, ton, in terms of vulnerability in the United States is our controlling of waterways. But water wants to change. It needs to deposit sediment. It needs to be free flowing. That doesn't really jam with how we think about land ownership in the United States of America. That's the, That's the actual problem. So thinking about a more adaptive and dynamic relationship to land might be what's necessary, and how we how we uncouple that from land ownership is a big question. And I think there could be some significant reshaping of our relationship to land and land ownership that you know climate change is going to provoke. Uh, a lot of people own a lot of land on those coastlines, and what happens? What happens? it's not just about moving inland because the problem keeps coming is going to keep coming. it's about understanding a different relationship to land altogether. It's a big question uh, that gets at the heart of the way our society functions
1: um I mean yeah it, it so your idea. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it gets um you know it gets to deeper systems right and and uh, and other stories right like what does it mean to really own land do you really own it or is it you know a kind of ownership um or or, or an illusion of ownership um and that's another conversation for another day but Um, You know, I know specifically you've worked on projects that address this. I think one um, is in Philadelphia, right, with uh, is it called Graffiti Piers or Mm -hmm. Graffiti Park? Um, Could you could you and and, and what I found also interesting about that was the way in which uh, you approach the the discovery phase um, of that project, which I think for me brings a level of kind of heart Um, and concern for the individual um to to that practice could you walk us through um that project and the ways in which it manifests and also then use design to address encroaching um waters
0: yeah and that's I mean that's, that's my favorite part of what I do because I get to like think about like big big issues and then touch the ground and you know, think about it in a particular place and test out what's possible. Um, So I appreciate that question. So Graffiti Pier was historically uh, a really important part of its ecosystem as uh, an emergent wetland, a marsh. Um, And with the coal industry in the state of of Pennsylvania, it became a, a coal chute, a pier. When coal declined in Pennsylvania, it coincides with the invention of graffiti, which was invented in Philadelphia, not in New York. Don't, don't go to the Philadelphia and tell them it was invented in New York. They will let you know. So it's invented in Philadelphia and it means when coal is declining that a lot of the infrastructure built for coal uh, becomes a, a central part of this emerging street culture. And so this site, Graffiti Pier, was one of those sites uh, in the 1970s. And essentially, over time, it's, it's continued to be a really important part of street art and graffiti until 2010 when Instagram happened and it became the most Instagram spot in Philadelphia. And there's just like throngs of people there all the time, and you know, all these novices, you know, not who don't know the rules of graffiti, just messing things up and It became a liability for the rail company that owns the site. So we were commissioned to um, work on the project. Our approach to it was to say, you know, graffiti writers have been criminalized for their use of the site. They've imbued so much beauty in this place, but um, now is, you know, now the city is interested in making it a public park and it may displace them from this important cultural landscape. So we said, we want to engage the graffiti writers. And, you know, for the graffiti writers, they were like, we don't, we don't want to talk to you. For <laughs> they were like, don't do a park and definitely don't do landscape architecture because they're thinking of the High Line, you know, and all these associations, Central Park even, you know, you don't, there's a, just a visual of what a park looks like. Um, and it's not a useful device in, in that context. So we, got a beer tab from the client and we met with graffiti writers at bars and their freeways and we had representatives sent to us and anonymous phone calls and anonymous emails, really trying to tap into, you know, what this landscape means for them and what's the best use of, of our services. What we found was that within 25 years, the site will be submerged by high tides. So uh, that, does, that means it doesn't take a Hurricane Katrina. It doesn't take a large storm event. It just means every day this place will be flooded. So in order to keep things the same, we have to change them. And that's a kind of a, ch- a shift in our thinking. You know, we think of cultural preservation as you know, keeping it. And we can, we, nothing, nothing is a given anymore. So that, that I think highlights a role for landscape architects in the context of climate change. Places that we care about, we have to do something to protect them. So we shared that with the graffiti writers and it became a, a save graffiti peer project. Um, and we worked uh, hand in hand with them about designing, designing what that means. We asked them, you know, what are the most important, what's the best thing that can happen here? And they had a lot of really great ideas and our job was to translate that into a landscape design. And so the pandemic hit in the middle of the concept phase And we started to engage them through the making of zines. And so they would graffiti onto the pier um, their different ideas and thoughts and take pictures and send it to us. And we had this really dynamic back and forth between graffiti writing and landscape architectural drawing. Um, And and so essentially the proposal became about a few things. One was creating uh, a wetland buffer, which meant that we are buffering against storm surge and the rising tides. But we're also creating a kind of a visual barrier so that they can remain um in a safe space to practice their craft and that was really important to them they also talked about keeping it gritty and when we said what what's gritty what does grit mean to you they said rocks and mud and plants and water landscape so we said okay the ecosystem of graffiti intersects with the ecosystem of this historic uh, wetland. And we designed this huge wetland buffer that will safeguard the culture um, and also safeguard this place. And so we're going to enter into the next phase of construction documentation uh, later this year.
1: I, I love that. I think that's you know incredible. And I think, you know, in. It kind of gets to the heart of, of, of why design, right? Because design is really the the um, the answer to a question, right? Like, how do we solve the problem of, of retaining a level of culture um, while also, like, protecting, right? And, like, we use design as the answer. But design was also, like, what do we do with all this land we just stole?
0: Talk about it.
1: Right? Um, and then also... I want to quickly circle back when you were speaking about, um, you know, using indigenous technologies or reinvestigating or unearthing indigenous technologies with, with to understand how we combat climate change. I do want to shout out um, Beige, Be- what are, people from Barbados. Are they Bayesian?
0: I've heard Bayesian and Barbadian.
1: Barbadian. Bajan or Barbadian, someone can correct me, um, but Alyssa Amor Gibbons, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she is an architect working in Barbados who is actually... Um, using indigenous technologies and the technology of the shotgun house Mm -hmm. um, and slats, right? Wall slats that actually allow for um, buildings to withstand hurricanes Mm. Um, and really thinking about the ways in which how places like Haiti and many other Caribbean islands, you know, it was it was it was colonial architecture that was just dropped onto these places, but they were not designed for the weather right Mm. you know those roman corinthian columns they're not made for you know a hurricane season you know in saint martin but what were the indigenous technologies what were the people actually building to withstand it and how do we then use that as an like how do we tap into that to update you know these architectures um and the built environment but you know to kind of bring it back to to frederick law Olmsted and you know his way of moving through the world you know to take you know over 800 acres of of what could be privately owned land and give it back to the public was a really bold move um and in thinking of contemporary landscape architecture like what are some bold moves Mm. we should be making now Mm. right what 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 are the bold moves that even the everyday citizen can be taking or thinking about um, as they engage with the environment? When they step out of the house, right? When they go to the voting booth, like what? What should we be thinking about?
0: That's a really great question. I mean, the idea of collective ownership is 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 embodied in that gesture, and so there are some interesting mechanisms for collective ownership today um, that are not just useful for parks, but for designing the worlds that we want to live in. So one of the the models that I'm most hopeful about, and and we've had at least one client to date, really demonstrate its potential is the idea of a land trust. So a community land trust, an entity that um, is formed by people to collectively own land. And they can develop it. They can develop residential, retail. They can generate income and share that income. They can design their own parks that tell their own stories. They can design their own memorials their own institutions. I mean, it's kind of endless. And as we think about the chapter after gentrification, uh, because it's time to think about that, um, I think that the community land trust model is, um, is one that we should be looking to. So I've been working with the Africatown Community Land Trust um, since 2015. It is in the, in the only historically African-American community in Seattle. And in the 1970s, it was 77% black and today it's 10. And um, the, the generation that witnessed the dismantling of the neighborhood, for, they started to call themselves Africatown because the adjacent Chinatown hadn't seen the same displacement. And they said, okay, what if we, what if the name suggested something about the history of this land? And so they started to colloquially call it Africatown. Now the mayor calls it Africatown. Now, you know, they were like, well, Europeans just came here and called it America. So <laughs> we're going to just start calling it Africatown. And it's working. It's been 15 years now of, of this place being called Africatown and um, they formed the Africatown Community Land Trust, and they've been purchasing property and developing it from the ground up, hiring Black architects, engaging the community to think about what what does it mean for Black people to be in the future? What does it look like? We can build it. And in fact, they have. They've been building uh, ground-up construction, first floor retail, all Black-owned businesses, small enough retail units to get the small entrepreneurs in the neighborhood, you know, in those units and able to afford retail and all the community organizations based there, all the political organizing, everything is happening. And they've created this village for, you know, in a place where they have a historical tie to. So I'm very, very energized by the idea of a community land trust. Um, and they can take all different forms, but uh, I'll just throw that out there as something to look into as. A model, a mechanism for coming together to actually build uh, places that, that are for us. Um, so that is with operating within the kind of structure of, of private land ownership. But, you know, the lo- one of the largest landowners, especially in the West, is the federal government, you know, state, city, all. they are major landowners. We are in control of that. We are in control of that. What happens to that land? whose stories get told on it, Um, you know, there's, again, as as I was mentioning before, there's a level of engagement that that we um, can aspire to, to make decisions about coastal resilience, coastal management, what does happen to people whose land, uh, you know, becomes uh, vulnerable increasingly in the context of climate change. These are huge political issues to engage in. There's, you know, since 2015 and now since 2020, there's been a lot of questions about Confederate monuments and memorialization so a lot of our work now is in that context and so in, engaging in in the storytelling dimensions of land is also you know another element to 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 keep your eye out for but publicly owned land that's accessible to people in the form of public parks is is probably an element that seems less political oh somebody's taking care of it people i just get to enjoy it but it's 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 being chipped away at little by little. And what we saw in the pandemic was the need for public spaces in in a way we never probably appreciated. It was our mental health facility. You know, it was, you know, Central Park was a field hospital. You know, these parks aren't like cute things to walk around in. They are a part of the central infrastructure of a city. They are, you know, our promenades are places to see each other safely to, you know, there are significant studies on the psychological value of being in nature. You know, we, we humans were not meant to live, you know, in concrete and steel. We need a relationship to the earth. And that's part of, of being alive. And so being involved in the advocacy and the d- despite everything I just said, by the way, you know, what got cut during the pandemic funding for parks, like make that make sense. So you know, engaging in that as a, as a, a central piece of, of city infrastructure is, is something that probably you won't hear very often as, a, as somebody, you know, somebody fighting for that. But that's my role. That's me. That's, you know, I, I really feel like the little moments of joy that are so much a part of the resilience that we need to live in this country, I find in public space. I find that in public parks. You know, I find that in a gathering with my family, like a family reunion in the park or the layout or, you know, whatever it is. It's like, that's where we, we are in the yard. We are in the, in the park. We are outside with our people. And, and so I just want to underscore the significance of that in our everyday lives.
1: Yeah. um, You know, and before I ask, you know, the final question, um, you know, I want to, you know, just double tap on that. And, you know, you know, for listeners, you know, when you walk out of your door today, take a look around, you know, look and see where the trees are in your neighborhood. Um, Look at for fresh plantings, right? Look at the places that have sidewalks and the places that don't have sidewalks. You know, think about, you know, if you're in an urban environment, what boulevards look like, right? You know, when you have a boulevard that's just pure concrete versus one that has a a mall, you know, in the middle of it with, with trees and grass and flowers. And think about how you emotionally feel in those spaces that are with or without a level of greenery and began to develop an emotional vocabulary around the ways in which space affects you, right? And so we can all have an understanding of that, that the world we live in has been designed and it is also at the same time designing us and that we need to maintain a level of perceptivity. And so Sarah, I also want to thank you for um, and acknowledge you for the work of 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 filling in the blanks of a 150 year profession um, through the work of Francis for, I was going to say Francis Frederick Law Ol- I Francis is kind of cute though um Frederick Ol- Ol- Olmsted um and that that public parks were really a, were really a, a, a an abolitionist and liberative design like if we want to talk about what liberative design is We can look to parks. And so thank you so much for doing that incredible work. And I think also shedding a light on how our past is affecting and directly tied to our present, meaning the ways in which the history of this country has affected what we're dealing with today, not only socially, but in the environment. We are actually under duress from this enterprise of slavery right from the from a perspective of land and and i think this is what it means to have diverse voices and fields um because then you're able to really get at the thing itself right Mm -hmm. because you're able to bring in a diverse set of perspectives to look on a thing and so i want to thank you for that you know tireless labor right like it shouldn't be on you it shouldn't be on the 13 of you women you know licensed landscape architects in america um but that's just where we are and it's foundational work and so i want to acknowledge and thank you for that and then also teaching the next generation right you're also um an assistant professor at, at harvard graduate school of design um and so thank you for that um but for our last question if you had everything at your behest, what is the world that you imagine for the future?
0: These are great questions. You know, kind of piggybacking on on your concluding thoughts, um, shade and seating are among the most political dimensions of the urban landscape. I mean, to me, that's comfort. You know, it's about comfort. I think designing places, a place where I feel like I belong, you know, um, as a Southerner, as a Black woman, as, uh, you know, a person that grew up without means, as a person that is a child of immigrants, as a, you know, you could go on and on and on, but um, how do you design a place that makes people feel like they belong? I think about Bell Hooks and her description of the aesthetics of being. That's a concept for me, that's a, a, driving, a driving kind of North Star, that there is an aesthetic, there is a way to design being and design existence, and it's about comfort, you know. Um, and so something as simple as the, the simple joys, the simple comforts, that's, that's what makes great design. You don't even have to think about it. You feel like you belong in it. And so a place to sit, a place that's shady, you know, a place that reaffirms my history, my identity, um, that, that's the world I want to live in. And so even, you know, being able to talk to you about about all of these issues and then, you know, go back to designing this bench and how it's going to, you know, come together with the paving and the jointing and, you know, the, is it mortar set or is it, those little moments, those little details, I really believe are what make people feel like they belong in the landscape and in the world. And so that's the world I want to live in. Sometimes I get to live in it in little moments when I sit on a bench under a tree, Um, but it's the world I wish for all of us, you know, and that's the project I think of the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, So I'm really just walking away from this conversation in gratitude to have the space to, to talk about all these things that float around in my head. And um, so this is, this is a, this conversation is a gift for me. And that, that's how I'm walking away from this.
1: Hey, hey, we trying to be gifts out here. Hey. Um, so <laughs> so um, also really quickly before we wrap, like where can people connect with you? Where can people find out more about your work and practice? And when is this book coming? Okay.
0: Well, the, the manuscript will be done this year, so it'll hit the streets probably late 2023. Um, and you can find out about our work. Our website will be will be updated probably this summer. Um, but right now, studio-zodi.com is where you can find Graffiti Pier and some of the projects that we've been working on um, uh, over the last couple of years. So that's probably the best clearinghouse in terms of professional practice. Um, I mean, I'm on Instagram, but you know, I'm not like on the gram like that, but um, Zodiac, Z-E-W-D-I-A-C on Instagram is probably the best place to stay up to date on the Olmstead work and, um, you know, kind of milestones in that process. But the book will be out next year. And um, we're working, you know, across the country, our projects are across the country, Europe, South America. Um, and so, you know, if if you, if you we have a project in your city, uh, come to the community engagement events. We're very, very communicative with the communities that we're working in. So we have established relationships with people across the country. So don't hesitate to reach out. Um, via the website or via instagram um if we're working in uh in your city
1: amazing amazing and and zodia spelled z-e-w-d-e just for those listening and we'll put all of this in the show notes for people to uh find out a little bit more but sarah this has been a pleasure thank you thank you thank you so much
0: pleasure is mine thank you
1: Thank you all so much for tuning in. Sarah's research and practice is literally changing the way we understand the history of land in this country. What stood out to you? Share some of your favorite moments with us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to head to www.blackimagination.com backslash survey to let us know a bit more about you. We appreciate you so much. And as Frederick Douglass states... Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are those who want crops without plowing up the ground. Stay curious and keep dreaming.